Welcome to King Solomon and the Stoics, a project of denverkolel.org. In this episode, focusing on the first nine verses of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes Kohelet, we're going to see Solomon's insight into attaining a big picture mindset versus a small picture mindset. Let's jump right in. Solomon says it is better to have a good name than to have good oil. Commentaries explain that in the old times, a king or a priest or a Kohen was anointed with oil. That was something that was part of the process of the king becoming king, or the Kohen, the great Kohen, the Kohen Gadol, becoming a Kohen Gadol. So it's part of the status, part of attaining a certain role, certain greatness. In leadership was this oil. And Solomon tells us it is better to have a good name than to have good oil. Because a good name is something that's acquired through sweat, through work. But ultimately, that good name could change in a second. A person has to know, as much as they've achieved, as much excellence of character they've acquired and achieved, they can still slip up. They can still throw it all away in a moment with an, with an immoral choice. And that's why Solomon says, it is better the day of death than the day of birth. Because of the day of death, Sepharno explains, the good name is sealed on the day of death. As the sages say, don't trust yourself until the day of your death. On the day of a person's death, their good name, hopefully, is sealed. However, when a person is born, it's a clean slate. And some people misuse that opportunity of life, and they destroy instead of building. So it is better the good person, the righteous person, when he passes away, they're going to their world, they're going to bask for eternity in the pleasure, in the greatness that they've built through their lifetime. That's better than the wicked who are born and are now setting out on a path of destruction, a path of making the world a worse place than it was before they showed up. So it is better, says Solomon in verse 1, to have a good name that's acquired than to have status that may be inherited or may be misapplied. A person pushed themselves to the top or something like that. A good name is not something you can step on other people to acquire. A good name, ultimately, a good enduring name, is something that's a result of hard work, of good choices, of giving, of having a character that is worthy of emulation. So it is better to have a good name, says Solomon, than to have a good status that uh, that is defined, represented by this good oil. Solomon goes on to say, in verse 2, It is better to go to a house of mourning than it is to go to a house of rejoicing. Because this is the end of every man, so that the living person put to their heart, so that the living person focus and be mindful of the fact of their mortality. A person does not live forever. Death visits every person ultimately. And the living person should put to their heart that they're not here forever and that they're here for a purpose and they're here to achieve that purpose. There's nothing like thinking about our mortality that gives us a deep sense of sobriety, gives us a deep sense of calm, of understanding what is important and what is not important. Solomon goes on to say that it is better to have anger than to have joy. For with a negative face, the heart becomes better. And again, this is the idea Solomon's telling us, that it's fun and games is wonderful for the moment. But once it's over, what have we really achieved? 
What have we really gained? What lasting, enduring success is ours because we had a good time? Very often, most of the time, nothing. Says Solomon, however, when Hashem, when God sometimes shows us an angry face, so to speak, we suffer misfortune, things don't go our way, if it gives us pause, if it gives us reflection, if it forces us to dig deep within ourselves, to uncover our own greatness, that does better, that makes our heart good, as he says at the end of verse 3. So, to cap, to recap for a second, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of rejoicing, because this is the end of every person. And sometimes the angry and frustrating things verse 3 tells us, cause us to remember what is really vital. I'm so, so frustrated by such and such a thing didn't go my way, but is it really important? In the view of infinity, in the view of, of the eternity and immortality of the soul and the fleeting nature of life, is it really, really what's important? Let's take a look, a more careful look at the end of verse 2 for a second. Solomon said that it's important for a person to go to the house of mourning. And it is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of rejoicing so that the living can put to their heart. Rashi says a fascinating thing. Rashi says that the living person will put to his heart when he engages in the in helping with the burial of the deceased or with comforting the mourners or with eulogizing the deceased. He will put to his heart one day, he says to himself, this will be me. Every person dies. One day others will come and bury me. One day others will come and eulogize me. One day others will come and comfort the mourners, just like I am now doing to my friend, this deceased person, that I am burying them, that I am eulogizing them, that I am comforting their relatives. Why is this so important? It's such an interesting point. The sages tell us that burying the dead or eulogizing or accompanying them to their final resting place is a mitzvah. It's an act of kindness that is so pure because there's no sense that the dead person is going to return the favor. So why do the sages that Rashi quotes here go out of their way to say that the person engaged in helping out with the burial or eulogizing or comforting the mourners is thinking to himself, one day this is going to be reciprocated to me? That's a question that was bothering me. And perhaps the answer is as follows. When we have human interactions, we are engaged in something that in a certain sense is fleeting. For example, Rashi in his second comment in his second interpretation, speaks of the fact that it's a person who doesn't need to go as much. It's not as vital for a person to go join with the joyous occasions of his friend than it is to go and join in their moments of sorrow. And Rashi explains why. Because let's just say that someone has a friend and they had a young child and there's an occasion of joy and there's an occasion to go and wish them congratulations to go join with them in their joy. Rashi says that's something, there's other opportunities. God willing, that young child will one day get married. You can join in the marriage celebration. You can still be there for your friends. What Rashi means to tell us, I think, is that each, sna- each snapshot, each piece of life is only a piece But there's another opportunity. It's not the ultimate. It's not the absolute ultimate opportunity to be with other people. There are other opportunities. And what often happens is we get stuck in the moment. We get stuck in the particular opportunity. We lose sight of the bigger picture. However, when a person passes away, this is the culmination 
of the interaction that this person ha- has with others. The very nature of death is, an, is a silence of sorts. The very nature of death is where there's a lack, where there's a temporary, until the resurrection, a temporary lack of connection between the deceased and the people who still live on this earth. And the last interaction one can have with a deceased friend or relative is to engage and to help and be there in their burial eulogies and to support their relatives in the mourning process. That's the very last and ultimate and final act. It sums up a whole lifetime of human interaction. And this should give us pause. It shouldn't tell us that it's not important to be there for people in their joy. It shouldn't tell us it's not important to be there for people in the, snapshot, in the snapshots of their life. What it does tell us is to see the small pieces of life, the small moment-to-moment, day-to-day interactions we have with other people in life, and to see it as part of a bigger picture, to see it as little pieces of eternity. That's what we're trying to say here in this verse. That's, I believe, what Rashi is telling us. It's better to go to the house of mourning because a person needs to understand that their human interactions, the place they have in this world, which is amongst other people, the people that they have a privilege to serve, the people that they receive from, the friendships, the relationships, all those things are eternal, but we need to see them as such. We need to recognize, and this is something that comes out to the forefront when engaged in accompanying someone who passed away to their final resting place. It comes to the forefront of the person's mind. I'm engaged in a final act of giving. There's a building, there's an edifice of a relationship that I've had with this person that lives on forever that we will enjoy in the world to come. And this is the final little jewel on the crown of this relationship is this kindness I'm doing with this other person. And others will do the same for me. May I live for a very long life, a person should think. But one day, ultimately, a person will receive that which he gave, and others will return this kindness. Rashi is not telling us that he should do it with the ulterior motive, hoping for a re- people reciprocate the kindness he's done with this friend, that others reciprocate and do that kindness with him when his time comes. It's not the point. The point is to start to see the bigger picture, to see the relationship as, as a lifetime, as something built over an entire lifetime that endures, and how this is the final completion of that beautiful relationship. And that's how we have to see both our human interactions and our place in in our in our social strata, in our in our in our relationships, in the community, and so on and so forth. We need to see it as something eternal. Oftentimes we get stuck in the trappings, we get stuck in the moment, we get stuck in the day-to-day. And when that happens, we start to appreciate and start to consider too much what other people think, what is my status at the moment. Let's remember that Solomon told us in verse 1, it is better an enduring good name. To have an enduring good name, you don't have to have achieved a specific status. You don't have to have achieved fame. The details, the moment-to-moment feeling of being in a certain environment, of being treated a certain way, of having a certain status, those things fall by the wayside in the face of eternity. Let's focus on eternity. Let's focus on the true reality. That's what Solomon's telling us. And when we do that, as it says in verse 3, we come to appreciate the momentary anger, the momentary frustrations that sometimes put us back on a right path. 
more so than if everything was going smooth for us all the time and we would never ever have any reason to pause, any reason for reflection. And for that reason, Solomon goes on to say in verse 4, as he said in verse 2, the hearts of the wise people, even if they're in midst of festivities, they're always realizing that there's something more, there's something eternal, there is an immortal soul that far transcends the little trappings of this life that are going on around me. And so they are always in a house of mourning. God forbid, not that they're in mourning, not that they're sad, but they're always open to a bigger picture. They never get stuck in the moment, as pleasurable as the moment might be. However, the hearts of the fools are in the house of joy. In this similar vein, Solomon tells us in verse 5, it is better to listen to the critique, to the criticism, to the, to the yell, to the rebuke of the wise, than to listen to the song of the foolish. The song of the foolish sounds like praise and it's sweet to our ears. It makes us feel good momentarily. But ultimately, where does it leave us? But if you have a good friend, a wise friend, someone who is willing to set you right, what a gift, what a joy. That is enduring value. The verse 6, Solomon goes on to tell us, the voice of the thorns beneath the pot, so is the sound of the joy of the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. It's a fascinating analogy. Rashi tells us about it. In the name of the sages, how you have a pot cooking on the stove, and beneath the pot, you have wood, and you have solid pieces of wood that are really creating an enduring fire, at least for the time being enough to really cook this dish and really create something of value. But then there's these, there are these little thorns attached to the wood that are beneath the pot, and they crackle, and they make a racket, they make noise, and they scream out in the words of the sages, beautiful words, we too are wood, say the thorns. They make a lot of noise. They have a lot of noise, a big splash, but absolutely no, sus- no substance. There is no true value. And it's much deeper. It's much worse than just simply an alluring way of saying we're something when we're nothing, fooling people to think, wow, this fleeting pleasure, this splash, which is here today and gone tomorrow is important. It's much worse than just a momentary distraction. Because in that momentary distraction, which pulls a person from one moment to the next of just mindless entertainment. It pulls a person away from what the great Kabbalist Rabbi Vali calls a more elevated state of mind. Because a person can acquire an elevated state of mind through wisdom, through life wisdom, through study, through reflection, through good choices. All of that can get lost when one comes under the influences of these little thorns that make so much noise and say, look how important we are. Everyone knows about us. Look how important we are. Join us. Follow us. Listen to us. Read our material. Watch our videos. Tap into our content. And so on and so forth. But what ultimately happens is even the wise person, even the person who's acquired Rabbi Vali's elevated state of mind that he refers to, can lose it when he starts to come under the influence of these thorns beneath the pot. Rabbi Vali says that the reason why the Solomon point words it in such a way that the the thorns are beneath the pot is to teach us that initially these thorns and their way of life and the message they're portraying was initially beneath 
the level of the person listening, of the wise person engaging with these fools. And he said, well, you know, it's not so bad. This is interesting. It's entertaining for a moment. I see it as being something beneath me. I'm not one of them. I'll be okay. But Cesar by Valley, Solomon's warning us that lasts for a very short time. Ultimately, the person who gets pulled into this trap will ultimately lose their elevated status and he'll become one of them. He will become a fool himself. And that's what Solomon tells us in verse 7. Because the, the this is a thievery that this foolishness and this entertainment, so to speak, causes the wise person. It can ruin and it can rob a person of the heart of wisdom that they were gifted by God himself. And so it's not so simple just to go and engage with things, with people that are really beneath you, when you have to know it's going to have an effect. God forbid it can really ruin a person, it can really rob a person of their wisdom. Salma goes on to tell us, it is better the end than the beginning. The end is better than the beginning. And there's two ways to understand this. One way to understand it is that you have to focus on the beginning. You have to realize that the beginning is a place that will define the end. And the end will only be good when the beginning is good. That's one interpretation. The end is good when the beginning is good. Don't get caught up in the beginning just for the beginning's sake. Don't get caught up in the launch. Don't get caught up in the product launch, in the project launch, in the relationship launch. Don't get caught up in the launch. Realize you're in it for the long game. You're in it to create something enduring. And the end result will really tell you if the action, if the beginning was really up to par, if it was really with the right focus, really with the right mindset, really with the right goal, really with the right purity of heart. Everything needs to be tested with the test of time. Did it endure? Did it last? Did it accomplish? Then you'll know if at the beginning it was pure and focused and so on. Rabbi Vali tells us just a side point. He says we're dealing here with such a sh- almost strict idea. We're talking about such an ideal state of a person who always is sober, always lives with such a clarity of the eternity of life, of the focus of life. But what happens when a person does need a distraction? We're not on this level. What is a person to do? Says Rabbi Vali, I believe we can word it this way. Says Rabbi Vali, try as much as you can to trade your entertainment for recreation instead of watching some nonsense take a walk trade your entertainment that just pulls you down that takes your mind turns it off and replaces it with something else if you as much as you can and again we're not perfect we are who we are but as much as we can let's aim to use our breaks when we need a mind break Let's take a mind break through recreation, not simply through entertainment. And there's a fascinating end to verse 8. It says, the end is better than the, than the beginning. However, you want to explain that, as we said. And then the verse goes on to say, it is better one who has patience than one who is haughty. And it's a very strange contrast. We would think patience, we would contrast with anger, with frustration, with someone who has a short fuse and so on and so forth. Why is Solomon contrasting patience with haughtiness, with arrogance? The Maral explains that arrogance comes 
from trying to give definitions, trying to give physical dimensions to things of the spirit, to qualities that are really deeper and more powerful than anything finite. The person who's arrogant says, I've accomplished X. I don't, I can't show the world the subtleties of my accomplishments. So I must create it. I must make it into something finite so that I can shout it from the rooftops. In that sense, the arrogant person, he has something to announce to the world. But instead of understanding its true value, he now put it in a box, limited it in such a terrible way. That's what arrogance is about. Similarly, on the same vein, a person who has no patience, a person who's quick to anger, sees reality through a lens that says, I have to understand everything at the first moment. I don't appreciate that beneath the surface is deeper meaning. I need to see it exactly as it is. I need to see it right now. And it has to happen on the moment. That is the arrogant person and the person who has no patience share this trait that they don't realize, they don't live with the sense that there's something beneath the surface, something developing, something subtle, something spiritual. However, the person with patience, the person with a long ruach, a long spirit, recognizes there's a spirit here, there's spirituality, there's depth, there's subtlety. Things are developing. It doesn't need to be finite, boxed in, defined in the first moment. I can let it go. If initially it seems difficult, it seems challenging, or as we've been discussing, someone has given rebuke, someone has said something to us, and we don't appreciate it. Patience, wait, realize there's an end goal, there's going somewhere, there's something deeper here that's developing. Solomon goes on to say in verse 9, don't rush to anger. Rabbi Vali explains the evil inclination, the person, the aspects of our personality that try and bring us to anger, are pushing at us, they're pulling us to anger. Don't go with the invitation. You have the ability to say no. The wise people say no. The wise people are also tempted to anger. But they have self-control and they say no to the temptation. But the fool, Solomon closes verse, verse 9 and says, The fool allow anger to rest in their flesh. They allow anger to rest inside of themselves. They make a home for the anger. The wise person understands that the frustrations of life can make us humble. And that humility creates a space for greatness. But the wicked, the foolish... They believe everything needs to happen and needs to happen right now. And if I'm frustrated and I'm tempted to anger, I'm going to follow that impulse and allow frustration and anger to literally eat me up. That's the path of the fools. Let us endeavor to see the big picture. Let's be patient. Let's see the subtlety. Let's see the spirit. Let's allow the frustrations of life to humble us, to open our hearts and make room for the incredible greatness that we're all capable of.